Welcome to the seventh episode of the Squadron's Pirate Radio podcast. I'm your co-host, Michaela Sani, along with General Manager Scott King. And joining us today is sailing enthusiast and past Vice Commodore, Dennis Linton. Dennis, welcome. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for, for having me. We're very pleased to have you on the show, and I know we have a lot to talk about today. Um, so let's kind of just dive right into it. Uh, you've had a lot of offshore sailing experience, and that's something we, we want to hear a little bit more about. So can you tell us a little bit about your early days and some of your first offshore adventures? Yeah, well, er early days for me started uh, in my late days. I started in my 40s, and at that time we were living in Calgary. And uh, the first thing that happened there was I bought a book called Sailing for Dummies. <laughs> and then so shortly thereafter, uh, we bought a little dinghy, a 16-foot dinghy. And so I sort of had my first sailing experience on the Glenmore Reservoir in Calgary. And I do recall thinking, isn't this great being pushed around by the wind? It's free. <laughs> Little did I know the free part did not apply. So that, that's where it all started in Calgary. But then as an extension from that, uh, my job took us to Toronto. And by now we had a bigger boat, uh, a Sandpiper 17. And of course, Lake Ontario is like an ocean compared to the Glenmore Reservoir. So there in, in uh, Lake Ontario, uh, and in Toronto, I started to educate myself beyond the dummies book and broaden my experience. Uh, I took a number of uh, CPS courses, Canadian Power and Sales Squadron, and this is an, organi uh, an organization that I hold in high regard and I recommend it to anyone. So that's where it all started and uh, sort of started to move up the scale. I, I do recall uh, our first trip of consequence. We had sailed around the western edge of Lake Ontario, sort of uh, Burlington, Hamilton, right round to Niagara and the lake, within sight of the shore at all times. And, uh, and when we got to Niagara and the lake, we made the decision that we would sail back across Lake Ontario and of course, you can't see the other side. And on this particular day that we chose to do that, uh, there was, uh, it was essentially very smoggy, not foggy, just smog. And visibility was maybe a couple of miles. But I had a Boy Scout compass on board and uh, set the destination uh, or decided that it was going to be the CN Tower. Mm. And fortunately, uh, the CN Tower came visible just about three miles off. And uh, I recall that moment as being a bit of a defining moment. It sort of gave me confidence on handling the boat and the actual navigation. So that, that, that was a sort of a big chapter to get uh, Calgary and then Lake Ontario. And of course, then you like uh, you will know that my job took us back from uh, took us from Toronto to Halifax, and by now we had a 
a different vote, a, a, a CNC 27 uh, called Quanda that was at the club for a long time. And when we came to Halifax, uh, I continued to educate myself on celestial navigation and RDF navigation that only old timers like me will understand. So that, uh, that was it up to but before my offshore experience. Back to you. That's excellent, Dennis. I mean, obviously a big step from going from a, from a lake, even a big one, such as Lake Ontario, but then to start um, going offshore. I mean, how, how quickly did you take to, um, to offshore racing in its truest, not racing, sailing, I'm sorry, in its truest sense? Was it something that you, you took that confidence that you gained um, from that experience and then immediately set sail um, off the shore? Or did it take you a while to, to get that confidence level where you're out in the ocean? Yeah, so, so now we're in Halifax and I continue to educate myself. And the first uh, sailing trip offshore was uh, the squadron down to Bermuda. And there was myself and two others on board this 27-foot sailboat that by ocean standards is quite small. But in any event, uh, off we went. Uh, and had a, a really difficult passage. Uh, everything that could go against us did, uh, the, the weather in particular. But in any event, uh, we got there in one piece, uh, uh, safe and relatively sound. And I recall my two crew members were a bit apprehensive because they had sort of committed to sail back with me. And I could <laughs> sense them. I could <laughs> I could sense unease on their part, and I strongly encouraged them to uh, to fly home from Bermuda, which which they did. And then I recall having to call Denise and say, "You know what? Uh, I'm I'm on my own down here. There are a number of alternatives, but one of them is to I could sail back to Halifax by myself." And uh, she eventually said yes. And I, <laughs> how, how much? How much convincing did she take? Did she take? I, I, I promised her I would sail the boat very conservatively, which one can do. You can sail aggressively or conservatively, and I chose, I promised in fact to sail conservatively, uh, which I did. And the trip back was relatively uneventful, believe it or not. It was slow. But as I came into Halifax Harbour that particular time, it was a bit of a defining moment for me because I sort of thought to myself, I've just sailed 1,500 miles, 750 down, 750 back. And I know Ireland is only 3,000 miles away. So that was a big sort of uh, seed being planted in my head. It was always in the back of my head to sail across the Atlantic, but, but never that strong. And suddenly I realized that the stars were lining up in my favor. So uh, that, that was the, so back we came, or back I came into the squadron and that was, that was, that was the end of that trip. But shortly thereafter on my 50th birthday, 
Denise, my wife, gave me a Burgie, a UK courtesy Burgie uh, for the UK. And that was her way of saying, if you want to go, you can go. I'm not going to step in your way or stop you in any way. So I took that as a big time green light and uh, started basically started to plan. So as you can see, sailing and offshore sailing, we meaning it and me, we started, we really sort of grew into each other over a quite a long period of time. So I was basically learning the ropes. I did continue my sailing education even after the solo trip uh, by going over to England and taking two RYA courses, the Yachtmaster Offshore and Yachtmaster Ocean, that are very, they, they are the, I'll call it the gold standard of sailing education. So that, that was how the offshore part all came about. That's an astounding accomplishment to go from just, you know, an offhanded, relatively offhanded decision to sail home by yourself, dispatching a crew and doing that. And then roughly how long did you take in preparation before you undertook that Atlantic crossing? The, the Atlantic crossing was essentially the better part of a year, uh, believe it or not. Uh, the, the preparation involved a, a lot of things. First, you know, obviously the obvious things are charts and that sort of thing. But in my mind, it involved physical and mental preparation. The physical preparation is straightforward. You just uh, go to the gym or do your jogging and that sort of thing. The mental preparation is a little more difficult. You, uh, I, I finished up reading books galore with dreadful titles like 50 Days Adrift and How to <laughs> Sail, how to sail in, in Storms and, and sort of gruesome titles. But they were all informative, each in their own little way. So I, I put that under continued... Uh, expansion of knowledge. Uh, so that's how that part came about. Uh, the preparation, as you get closer to the time, obviously you get down into food and uh, uh, just sort of, I'll call it basic things. The amount of water you have on board, the amount of food. And uh, so that, that was that. If you, had, if you had that time over again, that preparation period, that, that year, would you have done anything differently? Actually, uh, yeah, not, not really. Uh, in my mind, I had a, a distinct plan because the, the trip itself, uh, it, it's, it's more defined by what I did not have rather than what I did have. Uh, what, I, what I did not have, I, there was no radar on the boat. There was no outside communication. There was no GPS, that's important. There was no fridge, uh, just an ice box. There was no mechanical self-steering, uh, no furnace for heat. And uh, obviously, as you're aware, there was no crew. So, but what, it's more important what I did have. I had a great little boat, uh, the CNC 27 Quanda. And I'd learned just how great it was on the Bermuda trip that was a couple of years earlier. And, what I, and I, I had a year's preparation under my belt. 
I had the ability to do sextant or celestial navigation sites and routinely could get an accuracy of three miles or less. And that, that turned out to be important. And uh, I had three ordinary radios, shortwave radios that I could hear, Voice of America and BBC and that sort of stuff. So I had lots of company and uh, I had enough food that it would have lasted me probably two, two and a half months. What a what a purist experience. I mean, the mental energy that that you would have had to, you know, prepare yourself to expend on on that trip is is really incredible and and something that I think um is probably what most people um shy away from when it comes to to offshore, you know, sailing especially on their own. Uh, is there any advice you'd have for anyone who was about to embark on a similar well, journey? If someone's planning something like that, I, my, my approach to it is people say, oh, I'd love to cross the ocean or do, or do something big like that. And my, my answer is, it's not something you dream about. It's something you want to do. And in my mind, there's quite a distinction mm -hmm. between you want to do this versus dreaming you might do it. You have to actually dial in and say, I'm going to do this. So that's the only advice to distinguish between dreaming or wishing and actually doing. Yes, I, I think it's, a, it's certainly something that you would have to commit yourself 100% to. I don't think you could be half-hearted in any, in any respect um, to do that. Was there a, was there a moment in that, in that particular trip where you thought you might have bitten off more than you could chew or was it, were you confident the whole way? I know I had confidence the whole way in uh, the planning and the way it was unfolding. There were some funny things and there were some difficult things, but I had confidence in my ability to get to the other side safely. The, the, uh, the, I mentioned the funny thing. Uh, so you have to remember that I had no communication with the outside world other than the VHF radio, if I could see, or my radio could see another radio. So routinely, I would call off uh, to other ships. Even if you can't see them, you can still call them. And uh, my, I had a very standard message that a lot of sailors have since uh, remembered because I've, I've suggested it. I would call off any station, any station, any station, this is a small Canadian sailcraft en route to uh, Northern Ireland from Halifax. I do not require assistance. <laughs> I repeat, I do not require assistance. And whenever the sail or whenever other vessels would hear that, I can only imagine a sigh of relief on their head that, you know, some other sailboat didn't want fuel or milk or anything like that. So most of them, if they were within range, answered. And I think I had 12 ships and one aircraft answer in the 31 days that it took. So I was talking to somebody every, I'll say on average, every second or third day. The funny incident was... Uh, I was probably three, four hundred miles past Sable Island. 
sort of well established into the voyage. Now there was a, a daily rhythm, a daily routine. And I called off my usual message, any station, any station. Halifax Coast Guard answered my call. And I said, wow, I said, Halifax Coast Guard, I shouldn't expect to hear you because the normal VHF range is give or take 20, 25 miles. And his answer was, the, I, we've learned that the ionosphere had fallen on that particular day. Don't ask me how far it had fallen or any of the electrical uh, details because it's way beyond me. But my brain suddenly clicked in. If I could talk to them on the VHF radio, I could place a ship to shore phone call. Wow, and I, so I said, can I place a call? And he said, absolutely. And uh, he, he took the details of the number I wanted to call, obviously home. So by now you can imagine mm -hmm. my excitement and heart rate were going way up. And uh, he said, stand by, you're number one. And, you know, that means you're top of the queue. And uh, as Lily Tomlin might say, one ringy dingy, two ringy dingies. And then the, then the phone clicked on. You have reached the Linton residence. <laughs> you would like to leave a message, please do so at the end of the tone. So it, uh, I did leave a message, but uh, sort of went from quite high excitement to just ordinary excitement. <laughs> that was the funniest oh. thing. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, I bet Denise was very excited to to receive that message, um, especially because she wouldn't have been expecting it either. That's correct. Because um, anytime I got a touch with a sail with another ship, I, I had a very simple thing. I would do the any message, any message, any station, any station, and when they answered, I would tell them I don't need any help. I said, "What I would like, though, if uh, you could send an email or contact." Alex Coast Guard with the Latin long, you know, wish you were here sort of message, just Latin long, name of the vet, the vessel, and all okay. And I had become a bit of a project for Halifax Coast Guard because in those days you could file a sale plan. And I had gone over and spoken with them, and uh, so they knew all about me. And uh, so suddenly they were getting messages from ships as to where I was. And they were good enough to relay them, relay these positions to uh, to my wife. And she had a big chart and some help with where, where we were on the chart. So that was all very positive. Thank you, Dennis. So out of all your accomplishments, I'm sorry, there is one that I'm keen to ask you about. That's this Cook's Trophy that I read about in your Marblehead yeah. experience which doesn't appear to be sailing related, but it obviously appears to be quite important. Now, based on what you've just articulated, I, I wouldn't have thought you'd been in charge of the food. If I had you on a yacht, you'd be in charge of navigation, surely. So do you want, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit, a little bit about the, that achievement and what it means? Yeah, well, the Cook's Trophy is a famous trophy within the, the squadron Marblehead folklore. It's awarded to the cook on the last vessel 
across the finish line. And in those days, uh, there was a 30-foot limit <clears throat> uh, on, on the length of sailboats that could enter. And fortunately, the late David Prince, a uh, former member, encouraged me to participate because I had sailed it down to Bermuda and back. So I, I decided I would be in the Marblehead race in 1991, not ever thinking of winning anything, anything whatsoever. It was merely for the experience of uh, participating in the race. So I had two other people, uh, crew on board, neither of which were sailors. So, uh, but they were one, one was a relative and one was just a longtime friend. So uh, off we went down to Marblehead and had a straightforward trip, basically, and uh, enjoyed all the festivities around there, sailed back, and of course, being the smallest boat in the race, we finished last, and of course, we had no racing skills on board, and we weren't trying to race, we were just trying to finish. But then, then and because of that, you won the Cook's Trophy. So what happened was, as the pre prize presentation was taking place, and John Corkum, who was the, the squadron chef at the time, he presented it. And as I was walking up, someone said to me, but this is the Cook's Trophy. Uh, and I said, well, I was the cook. I was the navigator, and I was the skipper. So that got a lot so I've kept it ever since, and I, I returned it to the squadron, and I think it may be upstairs in one of those lockers, because it was a huge uh, piece of, uh, it's a pepper grinder, and it's about three feet tall, and it just doesn't lend itself to domestic use, so back <laughs> to you. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you first became involved with the squadron. Oh, that, that, actually, that was very easy. Uh, my boss, uh, who was a member at the time, the late Jim Babcock, uh, he, 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 he was a member and uh, he spoke highly of the club when we arrived in Halifax. And of course, we owned a sailboat and, uh, and it was as simple as that. And when I got there, I could, I could tell I was really going to like this place. The, the marina facilities were top drawer. I think it was phase two had just come into being and I was assigned a slip, uh, a slip on that one. But the, the, the funny part was I attended my first annual meeting at the squadron. And of course, I was hanging on every word because I was a newcomer to the place. And uh, there I was sitting, listening to this, and I had an empty beer glass in my hand. And neither of you might know him, but the late Charlie Waterfield was the bartender at the time. And without one word being spoken, a roll of the eye, a bit of body language, and voila, I had another beer in my hand. And I remember thinking, is this good or what? <laughs> I've heard stories of, of Charlie. I've, I've heard that he used to even keep cigarettes behind the clock in the wardroom for people. I don't know if that's oh, true yeah. or no, not. He was a character at the time. Uh, he's, he's long <laughs> since left us. Uh, but he, he was a fixture around there. 
and he could he could read your thoughts before you even thought about your thoughts. Uh, it was that good. So anyways, that was my connection to start with. And then, of course, my job took us back to Toronto. And uh, we, uh, I kept up the Outport membership, not knowing exactly where we were going to retire. Although in the back of my mind, the fact that they kept the Outport membership on tells you that I was thinking Halifax all along. So we came back here uh, mm -hmm. in retirement in 1998. And uh, not that long after, I remember uh, Heather Robertson asked me to uh, take on the BC at House and Grounds. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I did a subsequent assignment just as a member at large on the board. So, but the, the part I like most about the club, believe it or not, uh, or the assignment, pardon me, that I like most about the club was being officer of the day during Marblehead. It was, uh, I, it, I just love being asked to do that. It was, you're busy. The club is, uh, the club is a happy place. There's a real positive buzz around the place. And uh, you feel you're helping make a small difference to the event. So it's just, an, for me, a very enjoyable experience. Do you think you'd do officer again, officer of the day again for next year's Marblehead? I, I certainly would. I would. I I hesitate to organize it. You know, to organize the roster of people, and that's because I mm -hmm. just know less. As time has gone on, I know less and less people. But if someone asked me to do two shifts in the middle of the night, I'll be there. I'm going to write your name down. Yes, no, Des, right I, don't, I don't think it's, um, <laughs> it's your job to get to know everybody else. I think it's everyone else's job to get to know you. I think that would probably be more, more appropriate. Yeah. Well, it, it, in years gone by, I did, take, I did take the leadership role on the officer of the day. And that was because I just knew a lot of people. Uh, that has diminished over time. But uh, I'm, I'm personally still happy to participate and help out. You get dressed up. It's quite an occasion. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Just looking ahead, um, I know that everyone always asks you, you know, where are you going sailing this year? And um, you had a trip lined up with um, Wilson Fit. So is that still coming uh, coming around, do you think, or has that been postponed? No, regretfully, uh, it's not. So first of all, Wilson Fit, a fellow member at the squadron who has also sailed the Atlantic solo in his boat, Christina Grant. Uh, there's a big celebration in Cork, Ireland this year, this June, called Cork 300, and it represents 300 years of sailing over there. Uh, and he, he wanted a, a, a two IC to get help and get the boat across. And we connected and we had signed on. I had even got as far as to book my return flight home from Dublin uh, WestJet. Um, and that was back in January. But then COVID-19 came along and the event is uh, at minimum postponed, if not cancelled. And you can imagine it's essentially cancelled. So that, unfortunately, is not going to come to pass. 
I would have loved to have done that because uh, I would have had my 79th birthday en route and uh, I could really brag at the round table. <laughs> yes, I would have liked to have seen anyone try and beat that. Um, that's a, a great shame. Obviously, a, a great many things have, um, have changed this year, but hopefully next year you can sign on again and do your own just arrive in Cork and I'm sure they'll, they'll postpone those festivities, no doubt. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh... So you've helped, you've helped a, a few people cross off some, some big quests on their bucket list, um, including Judy Robertson uh, with the trip to the Azores. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And then also, you know, what's on your bucket um, list? Well, the Judy Robertson, uh, that came up by chance. She and I were sitting at the flag officer's dinner uh, some years ago, but the year before she sailed, whenever that was, about three or four years ago. And uh, she said to me, um, you know, she said, I'm thinking I'm taking Semper Vivens, which is her boat across the Atlantic. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for someone to help me. And I looked at her straight and I said, well, why don't you ask me? And... Uh, that, that's exactly how that came apart. So there were, she was the very, very experienced sailor. Then uh, I was the 2IC and her, uh, her, her friend David and her daughter, Maureen. Uh, so there were four of us on board. And we had a, we had a couple of difficult spots, but uh, thanks to Judy's experience and skill, we got through it uh, uh, Safe and sound, and it was a, it was a, uh, as my memory is, it was about a sixteen or seventeen day trip, but uh, it was good. It was a lovely boat to sail on. And the other the other trip I had, there was a trip, but it's someone else's story. Uh, was uh, not this past December, but the, the December before. Uh, Stephen Dempsey, Celtic Sea. He, t he wanted to take his boat down to the sunny the sunny south, and he and a fellow called Don Robertson, who used to work at the Binnacle, the three of us set off to Bermuda, in, and we left in late November. Now that was that was a very difficult passage, partially just wet, it was all weather related and uh, at the time of year. So, but anyways, that's. Uh, the difficult passage, that was, that's his story to tell, not mine. Well, that's a very interesting story. We'll have to ask yes. him about that. Irish luck story. Uh, on the Atlantic crossing, I told you about the phone call and, and getting the voicemail. The story of consequence for me was I was sailing across the southeast corner of the Grand Banks and... Uh, I had, I had sort of taken a bit of short, uh, shortcut. It turns out that I, had, I was sailing back into very cold waters. And on this particular night off, I went uh, sending off my usual message. And I had noticed that the temperature had started to fall. The temperature was down in the mid to low 30s. Uh, but it was foggy, so I, I couldn't see a thing. But the temperature had changed materially. Called off any station, any station, the ship answers. And eventually we exchanged pleasantries, and he says, oh, you're over there beside the iceberg. I said, what? <laughs> I am? 
I said, well, I can't see it, and uh, but I can certainly feel the effects of temperature. And uh, I sort of freaked out at that point because this was one thing I had not planned on, sailing into an iceberg at four knots. Uh, anyways, the ship's passing in the night. They went on their way. I went on my way. But I started to really think hard about what about what am I going to do? Do I just sail when I can only see or not? I decided to keep on going for the now. And about 10 or 12 hours later, called off any station, any station. And an aircraft answered, Canadian Military 109. And I knew from an earlier experience that this was an Aurora aircraft out of Greenwood. I said to them, could you give my position to Halifax Coast Guard, tell them that you heard from me, all okay. And could you ask them if there's any icebergs out there or, or words to that effect? They, they said, we will get back to you in a couple of hours. So you can imagine those were the slowest <laughs> two hours of this. <laughs> lo and behold, right on two hours, this Canadian Military 109 calling Quanda. I almost tripped as I dived across to the radio. And uh, he said, uh, I said, we've given your position to Coast Guard and we've, uh, uh, we regret to tell you they do not monitor individual icebergs. They do monitor sea ice, but that's different. I was far away from that. He said, however, We've just flown down your route and you will be out of fog in a hundred miles at the edge of the Grand Banks and there are no targets in your vicinity, meaning no icebergs. I said to them, you'll never know what you've just done for me. And the guy laughed and he said, we do. <laughs> Believe an Irish luck, you should start thinking about it. Anyways, uh, I looked them up when I got back and again thanked them profusely. So that was that was my good share of luck. Well, geez, Dennis, I can't say I've ever sailed across the Atlantic before remotely like that. And I'm sure that given the preparation and planning and the confidence, but surely there's a little bit of luck that would need to be involved more than a bit um, at different stages of that, of that journey to sort of pull everything together. So I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Preparation and luck uh, both. Both, uh, both played a role. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Dennis. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Um, I've learned a lot um, about about you and your adventures, and I'm certainly feeling very inadequate about my my achievement. Um, but thank you again for your time, and we, we, we hope that you're staying safe and well, and, and we look forward to seeing you with the club very soon. I, I, I've got the fingers crossed that the club's opening sooner rather than later. That's the plan, sir. That's the plan. Okay. All the best to both of you. Thank you so much for your Thanks time. Thanks so much.